chapter number two, and um, oh, are we online? Are we all good? All right, online folks, glad to have you here joining us as well. Um, we tonight are in paragraph 29 of uh, the Harmony of the Gospels and looking at the life of Jesus from a Jewish perspective. And we are at the point in his ministry where he has done his, is doing his first miracle, and it's the turning water into wine. Now, last week I did a, kind of went off script a little bit and did a whole study, well, not a whole study, we took 45 minutes or so and studied the whole topic of the Christian and alcohol and tried to look at it from a biblical perspective. Matter of fact, there was quite a bit of feedback uh, on that. I'd say it, it, was, it, was a, it was one of the videos that got a little bit more traction than normal. So I think there's a lot of interest in that. And uh, I kind of just shared my journey, personal journey, and uh, my position on that with, uh, as if you've been around here at length time and right up front, I don't believe that believers should have, that alcohol should be a part of their life. I don't think there's a need for it. But I've been taught, I was taught as a kid at some point in time in my life that, you know, it was always juice in the Bible. And, and that's just in my humble opinion. And if you look at the words and the culture, they, they, they did have access to just juice, but um, it was, there was some alcoholic content in the wine that needed to be, as we studied last week, simply for hydration purposes. They didn't have drinking water available everywhere. And we looked at that kind of in depth last week, so I don't want to re redo that. So if you're interested in that, look at the week before last Wednesday night on alcoholology, which is a word I made up. And then I found out as I, after I made it up, it really was already made up because there's nothing new under the sun. And I found out there's some, there's some YouTube channel that is all about how you make drinks. So, <laughs> so no good deed goes unpunished. But, uh, uh, but it was kind of the study of alcohol and as you know, just briefly, one of the things that uh, as I studied that, this whole topic, and I realized the need for why it's so prevalent in the Old Testament and the, the natural that they needed something to drink that wasn't going to make them sick all the time. But then I think the biggest thing that most Christians today uh, do not understand is that in Bible times, that they only had natural ability to ferment wine. They, they, they just did it natural. It's all I had available. And even inside of that, as you look in the Old Testament, you'll find that the Bible will differentiate between wine and strong drink, two different Hebrew words. And so they even understood the different levels of the alcoholic content based on, you know, its point, uh, its, its most alcoholic content. But at some point, it would begin to break down on itself. So we could only get mildly alcoholic, um, certainly enough to get you drunk because they had problems with it in, in those days. But um, to compare that to today, and most Christians don't understand that modern alcohol that most Americans would drink is rooted in the distillation process, which wasn't available till like 800 A.D. They, they had no sense of that. So, you know, the, 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 the vodkas and the tequilas and the, the, you know, the whiskeys, that, that kind of stuff w was not in existence in Bible time. And yet I would say that many Christians today drink and they do it with some sense of self-righteousness because Jesus turned water into wine, and therefore it justifies them doing, you know, doing this kind of stuff in the face of everything that we know of the dangers of alcohol and how destructive it is. And 
I don't want to, as I begin tonight, I am not going to back up, inch up, I'm not going to surrender up at all in my position because I'm not going to say it was every week, but I would say monthly, and then when I get in a role, maybe it is weekly, that I'm not confronted with someone that I'm trying to minister to, whether it's someone inside my own general family, you know, wider family, or whether it's someone in ministry that the lives of a family have been devastated by alcohol. That someone is in such bondage that it just destroys everything. And it stuns me, some wonderful people, good people, who get into that bondage and cannot say no. And it just has them. And that is why the Bible has some really strong negative things to say uh, about this issue. So um, I, I did get one, you know, I had one question. I asked everybody any questions and follow up. And my son-in-law in Kentucky, Scott, so Scott, if you're watching, shout out to you. Uh, he, he watched that and he was doing his own little study and he, he sent me a note and he said, hey, hey, Dad, I wanted to know, hey, uh, in Numbers chapter 28, verse number 7, God does command uh, them to use strong drink. And as I've shared with you, there, the strong drink would be the more alcoholic, you know, 12-ish, 13% alcohol, you really still compared to today, nothing, but um, versus wine was more near the 8% level. And he goes, that's kind of interesting that God would want to use strong drink. Why is that? So I had to do a little study on that. So it was interesting to me, and it is true. In Numbers chapter 28, verse number 7, uh, God is, commands them to take strong drink. But if you'll read in that verse, it says that they're commanded to pour it out at the altar, whether it's at the base of the altar or into the flame. I'm not really sure. I looked at a lot of different folks, had different opinions on it. Um, but basically, it was not alcohol that was consumed, but it was used in the drink offering. And you, if you don't know... In the tabernacle and later in the temple, there's always morning sacrifice and evening sacrifice. And it always typically was a lamb in the morning and a lamb in the evening. And in both in, in Exodus and then later again in Numbers, they are instructed to, with the offering of the lamb, which was a burnt offering, which was like a sin offering, a, a peace offering, if you will, covering sin is really, you know, the lamb before the picture of what Christ would do. But with that was also a... a, a, a a hen is what it was, the Hebrew word or what it's used in English now, I guess. It's like a quart, basically, of strong drink was, was to be poured out at the same time after the blood of that lamb was offered and after that lamb itself had been burned up. And now, whenever you get into typology, I don't like to get too dogmatic on it. And I spent, Scott, I spent a lot of time, I looked at a lot of different people who had different views on what the drink offering is and its significance of it. But pretty much... It came down to two different things that seemed to be most prevalent viewpoint on it. That, that that strong drink, the reason it was strong versus the mild, was it was picturing the full measure. Remember even when Jesus in the garden said, let this cup pass from me? And if you study the Old Testament, different cups that God sometimes makes people drink the cup of judgment. And Jesus took upon him the, the cup of the fullness of all of our sin and typified by the strongest drink. Other people say that it is a wonderful picture of commitment, that Jesus, you know, was committed to the cross before him and he was willing to die and, you know, on the road set before him. And then when you get into the New Testament in, in 2 Timothy, um, Paul mentions how he was like that drink offering 
that just as he was about to die, was about to be poured out, that he was going to give his full measure uh, for in commitment to the call of what God had, had called him to do. Um, so I think the key thing on that is it was not for drink, but it does mean that the priest had to have access to that to use it. And um, I think we all know, maybe you don't know, who is the largest holder of alcohol today in the world. you know who that is? <laughs> Ryan's got it right, the Catholic Church. Um, and we know how good it is when you mix alcohol and priests, right? Um, okay, I won't go any farther. I won't become sarcastic. I won't become offensive. I'll just throw it out there. We know, we know how well that, that works. So interesting. So tonight I entitled alcohol alcoholology too because we're going to talk a little about that and I want to finish um, the the story of the water and the wine and kind of put it into why what's significant about it according to Dr. Frutenbaum so in your Bibles uh, John chapter number two and verse number one the Bible says on the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage and when they wanted wine the mother of Jesus saith unto them they have no wine Jesus saith unto her woman what have I to do with thee mine hour is not yet come that's what we did last week or a couple weeks ago remember that the wedding feast in that day was seven days long and Jesus and his disciples were invited and there's this problem where the the host runs out of wine I don't know if they had more people there and attended I, I'm not sure but uh, Mary comes to Jesus and makes this request and we discussed, uh, matter of fact, I love that title. It didn't get a lot of traction, but I thought it should have. You know, uh, Water into Wine and was it uh, Boys to Men, you know, um, where, where Jesus demonstrated to his mother that he was no longer under her authority and he was about to do what he was going to do, not because he had to out of obedience, but he was going to do it out of honoring her. So that's where we were. Tonight we pick up in verse number 5. His, the Bible says, His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. So here Mary makes this request. Apparently there are other servants around, and Jesus makes it really clear to her that, woman, uh, you know, my miracle time is not really where I was planning on doing it. Again, sovereignty of God, determinism. Apparently God can be influenced by us somewhat. But at any rate, he, he, she says, oh, I want, you know, I, I, we're out of wine, indicating to him, hey, can you fix this problem? And one thing I do love about this situation is Jesus is clear with her about his relationship, that I'm my own man now, I've got a ministry, I'm not under your authority any longer. Um, but, and Mary doesn't argue with that. You know, I know sometimes moms, they become, you know, let's, let's be honest, anybody got one of those moms? You know, my mom would have never done that. My mom and I never argued. <laughs> No, my mom argued uh, since I came out of the womb. I, th I probably started arguing with my mom when I was in the womb. Some of you moms, is your baby arguing with you already, smacking you around, going, Mom, I disagree. I don't think you should eat that. Um, <laughs> that was me. That was me. Um, but Mary doesn't say anything that doesn't come back at him and say, you know, listen, excuses. Wait, I raised you. So, you know, whatever. She doesn't say nothing. Um, so she accepts what Jesus has to say. But notice in verse number five, you know, she looks around at the servants, whatever he saith unto you, do it. Don't you love that she has an air of expectation? I, she doesn't disagree with what Jesus says, and she doesn't create an argument there. But at the same time, Mary moves ahead in faith and in expectation, because as we all know, if there was anybody on the planet at this time that 100% knew who Jesus Christ was, it was her. She knew. She knew she'd never known a man and that, you know, that, she was con that Jesus was conceived of God and that he was God. She knew. And, and so she, and she probably also knew, raising him, 
I, I tend to think that Jesus, you know, I, I consider him, you know, the, the embodiment of the love of God. And she's like, you know, I know he's right and he doesn't have to do this. And as we discussed a couple weeks ago, later on in Jesus' ministry, there is a point where he tells his mom, he tells his mom no. But here, she doesn't feel that's going to happen. She says, so, hey, let's, hey, let's move on ahead. All right, I hear you, but whatever he tells you to do, do it. Now, notice in our story, verse number six, and there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. And Jesus saith unto them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he saith to them, draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. And when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants withdrew out the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and saith unto him, every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when the men have, and when the men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and, the, and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. So Jesus uh, tells them when Mary says, do whatever he said, you know, Jesus, all right, first thing I do is get those six water pots over there and I want you to fill them up with water. Now the Bible's clear to tell us in verse number six, these were just not any ordinary water pots. These were water pots that the, that the, the rabbis and the, the Pharisees had used for ceremonial hand washing. Uh, now, remember, they had a bunch of elaborate things if, that you had to wash your hand after this, if you touched this, you did this, and every time before they ate, they had a ceremonial washing. And it was not based in Old Testament law, but it was based in the Mishnah, the oral teaching. And if you remember, as we're going to go forward in Life of Messiah, there's going to come a point where, remember, Jesus' disciples violate this principle and the Pharisees get all bent out of shape because Jesus' disciples don't wash their hands correctly. Same principle that you see here. And they actually had special water pots that, were, that held clean water for this Pharisaical washing. Now, each pot, according to Dr. Frutenbaum, could hold about 20 gallons. So, you know, you do the, you do the math. What is that? About 120 gallons then altogether all, all here. But imagine if you were these servants that are told to fill these pots. You know, now... I don't know, but some of the servants, when they went to touch these special pots, it's kind of like, you ever been at a church where there's some kind of thing in the lobby or somewhere that you knew was somebody's special something, and if you touched it or moved it, you was going to be in trouble? You know, something's really, you ever been, I try really hard to make sure there's no holy grails, you know, that just because it's been here a while just means it's been here for a while. It doesn't, you know, you, nobody had that, but we used to have things like that, or maybe it's in the house. I, I, these were very special pots, and these servants who would have probably been very much under the thumb of, of the Pharisees in many ways, going, what? Um, these are the pots that are supposed to be only used for the purifying hand washing. If the Pharisees see me touching this, they're probably going to have a fit. Now, others of them, I thought, when Jesus makes this request, may have thought, well, this makes sense. Jesus tells us to get this water because what he's going to do to make sure there's more wine, he's going to go take the water and he's going to add it to the existing wine. He's going to dilute it out and it's going to be more, right? Because after all, as we taught last week and as you study in rabbinic writing in Old Testament, the, the wine was, it was, as a matter of fact, it was con considered barbaric not to mix it with water. And, and so it would have been a very normal thing for them to dilute it um, and so the guy may have, the servant may have said, well, Jesus is going to dilute this 
dilute this wine to make it last longer. But that was not the plan. So we find out that the leader of the feast was the one that makes the request, and the servants do as Jesus says, and they draw out and they take some of this water that they think from these pots and took it to the governor. Now, I don't know if they dipped like a pitcher in there. I don't know, uh, you know how, when they were aware that this didn't quite smell or look like water. Um, but I can imagine if I were the servant that was taking to the governor of the feast and he had requested, you know, some, bring me some fresh wine, you know, and, you're, and this guy's bringing it and he's, he knows that he just drew things out of water. Would you be a little bit nervous maybe? I mean, I think I'd be qualifying this really clearly. Like, hey, all I did is draw it out. That's all I did. I did. <laughs> you know, I have nothing to do with this. If you don't like this, you know, this is, this is on Mary over there. Mary and then Jesus, you know, her, her son, you know, it, it's on them. But we know the rest of the story. As the leader of the feast tastes this water and declares it's the best wine he ever had, I can imagine the look on the servants' faces if they hadn't figured that out because they knew just moments ago that it was just water. Now remember, this feast was seven days long and it was normal to give the very best wine. And I would argue that because they didn't have control of completely of the whole process, they knew it, that you'd get wines at different stages and some of them were considered more tasteful than others. And it was probably priced accordingly. And so they'd give the, the very most tasty part early. And if you showed up in the last few days of the feast, well, you got what was ever left over. It's kind of like at uh, it's kind of like at Taylor's wedding, you know. We have fat boys. Just was it barbecue pulled pork? Is that what it was? It was delicious. It was delicious. But you know, some of you people got there ahead of us. And Michelle and Jenny and I had a panic attack. Did, did we not, Michelle? Can I say this now that it's after the fact? You know, there there was not a lot left. Not a lot left of the of the pulled pork when we got there. We had to we had to put the kibosh on some of you. I'm sure it was Brock and DT probably just had big platefuls of it, saving any for me. I got all the gristle stuff. No, it was delicious, actually. It was really delicious. <laughs> they, said, they said to eat it all. Is that what you said? <laughs> DT's not backing up. He said, yeah, no, probably good for you. The, the moral of the story is don't come in last. That's the moral of the story, you know. Have the pictures of the bride taken. I don't care. We're going to take them out there by the by where the where the bar, pulled pork is. We'll take the pictures there. Um, but that's all that was happening here. And matter of fact, in verse number ten, I, I I have to address this. In verse number ten, it says, "Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when the men have well drunk that which is uh, worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now." Some people take that verse as when the men have well drunk and teach that it was a drunken party. And not only does it go against the cultural norms of the day, um, I don't think it all fits the grammatical sentence structure of when we just read the scriptures there. However, there are a few modern translations. Um, well, let me give you one. Uh, the NASB in 1995, the 1995 edition or older, the NASB says here, when they had drunk freely, which is a decent translation of that, all right? When they had drunk freely, when they, everybody had all they, they wanted to have. The 2020, if you don't know, the NASB has been recently redone, modernized. The new 2020 NASB says, and when they were drunk. That's a big difference in meaning there. And, and they, I'm sorry, they 
taken great liberties to make something say something it does not say. And I think it's a wrong translation, and it's not going to be used for good. Um, you understand that in Jesus' day, that the, the Pharisees understood the evil and sin of drunkenness, and we read about it in the Old Testament, and then on into the New Testament, where you understand now in the context why drunkenness is the issue, because they took for granted that everybody had to drink some kind of wine, or you would dehydrate and die. Wine was a staple thing of the day, but um, drunkenness was, was a sin. But in Jesus' day, and even in uh, one of the guys that I read on when I was studying this in the Greeks, the Greek culture, even the Greeks were, believe it or not, had some kind of standards on this, and they diluted the wine with water. And from the Pharisaical standpoint, often they did it for this express reason or purpose that you could drink all the wine you wanted to drink and not get drunk. In other words, it was diluted to the point that the capacity that a person could drink, they could drink all they wanted to drink and not be under the influence because they never wanted to be under the influence. And so here in verse number 10, when it says they had drunk, when they were well drunk, all it means is that everybody had had everything they wanted. It'd be like if I go back to Taylor's wedding analogy, it's like if there'd have been plenty of plenty of pulled pork and DT would have had all the pulled pork he wanted and Brock had all he wanted and now we brought out some more. It just means they had all, all they wanted and that's all it means. Um, I would tell you that when I read these things and last week and the last couple of weeks when I was just reading different people's takes on this and where the stands and not stands are and some people really believe and they teach this miracle that, that Jesus created toxic levels of alcohol for a drunken party. I, you know, I, it, it, that offends me. I, do you really, you think the Son of God, that he's going to contribute to sin like that? I, I, you, you're going to run into some problems there if you're going to hold that position. I, I, I don't believe he does that. Even today, if you're really, really thirsty or you're really, really hungry, isn't it wonderful to have hunger? You say, oh, what do you mean? Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what I mean. Because of my issues, my health issues, the neurological issue that I have, every now and then I'll go through seasons where my system, my neurological system will shut down the feelings of my stomach that I don't feel hunger. And Jenny would, for a while, when she knows it, she'll say, you haven't eaten anything in 24 hours. Like, I just hadn't been hungry. And it's because it doesn't work. <laughs> um, but I'll tell you, when I, you learn to appreciate hunger, the, the, a genuine appetite of it. And you go out there, and know you're really hungry, and then you come into Longhorn, and you, you hear that, you can smell that steak that's been on the flame grill. You know, and then they bring it out to you and it's done just like it ought to be done with a nice medium rare where you've got a warm pink center. Not raw, but you know, and I'm getting some amens out there, you know, and, and you get that first bite and it's just awesome. But if I were to sit there and tell you to eat three steaks right in a row, by the time you got to the third steak, would you be enjoying each bite like you did initially? Yeah, Drew's going, yes, I would. Okay, me, maybe me too, Drew. I might be there with you. Um, but even when you, when you think about people who do taste testing and stuff, and even in our wine culture today, of the, you know, they, they have to, before taste, they have to cleanse their palate. 
you know, you get water and you spit it out. You know, you taste it with these taste testers. And, and, and oftentimes our taste buds just get overwhelmed. Um, and all that's going on here is, to me, I think some people make too much of this, is that the governor of the feast, when he got the wine that Jesus had made, it was the perfect quotient of taste. And, and I thought to myself, whatever God makes, don't you think it's going to be the best? It just is. And so I don't think I'd read any more to that. Now, some people get offended by just the whole idea, and I understand this, and I guess probably used to hold this position, so I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that, that, you know, that if it contained any, if that wine was alcoholic at all, that Jesus was therefore complicit. Um, I, I would point you to considering even the act of creation. When God created us, didn't he create us in innocence? Did he create us as sinners? No. He put us in a perfect world, didn't he? But he did allow our adversary access to the garden. I'm not one that believes that God is the creator of evil. I think Brother Matt did a session on that in Pastor Danny's class a few weeks ago. I don't believe God's the creator and the author of evil, but he did create the potentiality of evil. But who's at fault for why mankind is in sin? God? No, we are. And so I think that that principle of culpability, there is an, an element of that. But again, today, the responsibility is on us to take the Word of God and see what it has to say about some issue and then look at where we are in our culture and our time and understand that we today have hundreds and hundreds of different types of, of hydration that will keep us alive and thriving and that today's drinking you know, justification is on this miracle is dishonest. And I've told you the story before. It, it's one of my favorites when Matt and Danny were doing, we were doing some door-to-door thing and they went to some place. Remember that, Danny? You know what I'm talking about, right? Didn't the guy, there's, there was like 24 packs of different types of alcohol, empty cartons just all over by, on the floor. By, they were coming up to the, 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 stair, the steps to the front door. And uh, when they're talking to him, it turns out the guy was some kind of worship leader at a church here in town, was on staff. I'm... I, I'm sorry, I, that I would, Pastor Danny, Pastor Cody, don't you dare. Um, <laughs> um, I would just tell you that I believe that as we consider all we know today, we don't need any of that alcohol for hydration today. We don't need it. And understanding that in our culture, our culture does not separate out, oh, this has just got eight person, you know, it's all drinking. And I don't believe a Christian should have anything to do with it. And as we saw last week, and I'd remind you again, please, do not think it can't happen to you. Do not think it will take you farther than you want to go. Do not think it's not impacting what your kids are seeing. Don't be a fool. I'm just telling you. As I shared with you last week, and I'll say it again, I have zero regrets that I never got into alcohol. I am so thankful to my mother and my father and I've my, they watched last week. They usually do watch, you know, for their testimony of ho- the stand that they took in our home. And I can tell you that I believe very strongly had my dad moderated on this issue for me, and if you know my personality, and if you've ever seen me with Pepsi, <laughs> if I'd have ever translated, I'm Irish, I'm half Irish, if I'd have ever translated that into alcohol, I would have never said, oh, I'm just going to have a glass of wine every now and then. Nonsense. I have a pretty good clue where it would have taken me. 
And I'm really thankful that my parents never gave me the justification of the moral equivalent say, well, mom and dad did it and they seem to be okay. Maybe you will be okay, but you don't know if your child is. And trust me, as a parent who has full adult grown children, the love and care you have for your kids doesn't change just because they're 30 and 35 years old. Doesn't. All right, rant over. Um, let me just end with, as we read this story in The Water to Wine, Dr. Frutenbaum brings out a couple of closing things, that, that especially in the last verse, in verse number 11, and we'll be done. I'm probably going to get done early tonight. Yay for me. Um, verse 11 says, This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. So we're told three things in this verse that Dr. Frutenbaum finds interesting, and I personally found interesting as well. Uh, Verse number 11 says that this was the beginning of his miracles. You ever seen anybody, and I know there's some television shows out there that want to postulate that when Jesus was a child, how many miracles did Jesus do when he was a kid? Because he was God, right? But if you take this verse at face value, Dr. Frutenbaum points out this puts to rest that Jesus ever did any miracles as a child, that this was the first, which makes Mary's faith that much bigger. Interesting point, uh, you know, I thought it was there. Secondly, this verse tells us that this miracle manifested his glory. We don't know how many at the wedding originally knew a miracle had even been done. You know, all of a sudden there's 120 gallons of wine that came from somewhere, better than everything else, you know. Um... But one of the commentators, matter of fact, several of them pointed out, and Dr. Frutenbaum did as well, that I thought was an interesting take, is the picture here that Jesus takes these, these legalistic pots, you know, where their hand-washing was, that was man's way, that brought weariness and drudgery, and out of that, Jesus produced satisfaction and hydration and joy. And it's a picture that Jesus would fulfill all the requirements of the law, and take off us the weightiness of the law, and instead give us the free gift of eternal life and grace, which is joy. And it's a wonderful miracle. Third, it says here in verse number 11 that his disciples believed on him. Now again, you're going to see this as we go through um, the gospel accounts of the life of the Messiah. And one of the things that was interesting to me the very first time I went through the life of Messiah just listening to it was... It, it made me kind of wrestle with just the idea of when was it that the disciples were, were really saved? Because it's very interesting. If you read different commentators, they believe that Peter got saved at Peter's great confession. This was his moment. You know, there's different times. Some people say, oh, they didn't really get saved until after his resurrection, until they fully believed. Because you're going to find that the Bible's going to say about the disciples that they believed here, they believed here, they believed here, they believed here. And, and, and you know, now I'm one that believes that the necessary component to salvation is knowing that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and would fulfill all the necessary biblical requirements of the Messiah, which was to die for our sins and rise again and that offer us salvation. And I personally believe that, that when the disciples first recognized, when John Baptist pointed out said, this guy over here, he's the, he's the Messiah, that they believed John and then they believed on Jesus that he was the Messiah and that was the point of their conversion. That being said, if you're of my opinion on that, that would mean that these disciples are already believers, quote-unquote. They're already saved, but 
John goes out of his way, it says, to go out and say that after they saw this first miracle, his disciples believed on him. Now, what does that mean? Well, they already believed. Let me ask you this. As a, as a believer, if you are a Christian here today, do you ever have a crisis of faith? Man, I have a crisis of faith almost every day. And I'm so thankful along the way God does things and shows me things and, and encourages my faith along. And I believe this is a, a statement that they had already believed on him that he's the, he's the one. But the more that they saw him do, the deeper that faith went. I believe saving faith is really a moment of faith. It's just a grain of a mustard seed. It's small. But to mature in faith means to have your faith be deepened. And it gets deepened when you and I have a closer encounter in our personal walk with Christ in our daily lives and, and the things that we're going through. We see God work where, where God does something for us. We see a principle in the Word of God applied in our life and we say, wow! And our faith is deepened. But I'm so glad that Jesus is a Savior that can bring sadness to joy and He can take the works of the law and brings them to joy and such a satisfying taste. You know, if our life is all sorrow and you're a Christian, I would ask you to humbly consider when we can read the New Testament and we find out the Christ-filled life or maybe what we more call it the Spirit-filled life. If you're full of the Spirit, I believe you manifest the traits of the Spirit what we call the fruit of the Spirit, which is what? Love, joy. I don't know how he does it because this, this life is full of a lot, a lot of hurts. Um, but I guess it's one of those things that when Jesus turns your water into wine, there's a joy that he can produce that is only can be attributed to the Holy Spirit and Jesus in my life. So hope you know that today, tonight, and I hope that's been a, a, a blessing uh, to you. All right. All right. Thanks for watching tonight. I hope you uh, enjoyed it. Uh, we will see you, uh, Lord willing, Sunday morning. I think we have a lot of things going on this weekend, don't we, Jen? Do we have do, Pastor Danny's back. Pastor Danny's back. I don't have to, you know. Do, do have Men's camp out, duh. Man. Hi. And there's a dime. All right, the Walk for Life is Saturday, um, and the men's camp out is Friday overnight to Saturday, and the Diamond Excursion is Saturday as well. So we got a lot going on this weekend. Yay, team. Go, team, go. All right, well, let's close in prayer, and we will be dismissed. Lord, thank you for this time tonight. Thank you for the teaching of your word. Thank you for uh, the joy that you produce in our lives. God, I pray that you'd be with each person that's here tonight. Um, Lord, I know each of us have to wrestle with different issues in our life. Uh, Lord, I pray for those who are under the bondage and battling with um, maybe an addiction to alcohol. Um, God, I pray that you would set them free as they seek your face. Um, God, I know there are folks that have been injured and hurting and uh, help us to be people of grace and uh, people that love, uh, love one another. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thank you for being here tonight. We'll see you. God bless you. Over.